The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. We are not the government. The government is not us. This is the O Files. I want to tell you all a story. This is a story that uh, starts with a phone call. Um. It doesn't actually start with a phone call. It actually starts about 200 years before the phone call, but we have to start somewhere, and so we're going to start with a phone call. Possibly the most important phone call that ever happened to you. Charlie Katz was a betting man. He was an odds maker. He was a guy who would call the bookies and tell them who the odds-on favorites were, to win college basketball games. Katz would tell these bookies this information using a telephone booth, at least through this period in the story. He used this booth to call bookies on the other side of the country. Why does that matter? Because he called across state lines. That makes his actions a federal issue. And a federal issue it was. The FBI knew what he was doing. And they decided the best way to nail this bastard for making deals with other people peacefully, I don't know, the best way they could nail him, they thought, would be to tap the phone. That's when Katz makes a phone call, and the FBI records it. Katz was charged with eight counts of knowingly transmitting wagering information over telephone across U.S. state lines. He was tried in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of California. His lawyer tried to suppress the phone call, but no dice. Katz was convicted of these crimes based in no small part on the evidence from the listening device that the FBI had installed. Now, before I go any further, this wasn't a wiretap in the way we think of a wiretap. This was a listening device, effectively a microphone affixed to the outside of the telephone booth. When Katz appealed his conviction to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, their justification for affirming his conviction was that the listening device was outside the telephone booth. They didn't put anything in the room with him, if you will, and thus his Fourth Amendment rights had not been violated. From this point, Katz appeals to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court granted cert, and they heard oral arguments in 1967. The result was a 7-to-1 opinion overturning the Ninth Circuit. 7-to-1, that's 8 justices. 
Thurgood Marshall had recused himself because he'd actually worked on the case on the side of the government before being appointed to the Supreme Court. Now, the arguments being laid out by Katz and by the government were based on an older standard, but the court dispensed with this older standard pretty quickly, writing, quote, The petitioner Katz has strenuously argued that the booth was a constitutionally protected area. The government has maintained with equal vigor that it was not. But this effort to decide whether or not a given area, viewed in the abstract, is constitutionally protected, deflects attention from the problem presented by this case. For the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. What a person knowingly exposes to the public, even in his own home or office, is not a subject of Fourth Amendment protection. But what he seeks to preserve as private, even in an area accessible to the public, may be constitutionally protected. Cats at 352. Now there is no way that Justice Potter Stewart could have known what he was writing at the time. There is no way that he could have known what this opinion was going to be used to justify, what this train of thought would be used to justify. Had he known, I imagine he would have been horrified. The same goes for Justice Harlan's concurrence. Now his concurrence was designed to expand upon the Stewart opinion but he actually formulated what came to be known as the Katz test. He wrote in his concurrence, quote, My understanding of the rule that has emerged from prior decisions is that there is a twofold requirement. First, that a person have exhibited an actual subjective expectation of privacy, and second, that the expectation be one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. Thus, a man's home is, for most purposes, a place where he expects privacy but objects, activities, or statements that he exposes to the plain view of outsiders are not protected because no intention to keep them to himself has been exhibited. On the other hand, conversations in the open would not be protected against being overheard for the expectation of privacy under the circumstances would be unreasonable. Katz at 361. Just over 10 years later, the court would codify this as the test to be used to determine whether or not a person's Fourth Amendment rights had been violated in cases similar to Katz. The effect of this has been far-reaching and insidious. The insidiousness of this formulation came to a head in 1976 and 1979 with two cases. The 76 case was United States v. Miller, and the 79 case was Smith v. Maryland. In the United States District Court for the Middle District of Georgia, Mitch Miller fought to have bank records suppressed. See, the ATF had decided that Miller was operating a still, and they had gotten a hold of some bank records, attempting to prove it. The way they got a hold of these bank records, though, was by issuing a subpoena instead of a warrant. Miller, of course, appealed his conviction on that basis. And the Fifth Circuit agreed. They overturned the conviction that the government had earned in district court. But the government decided to appeal. Oral arguments were presented to the Supreme Court in 1976. It was a 7-2 decision against Miller. The court reiterated what they'd already said in Katz, that you must have a reasonable expectation of privacy in order for the Fourth Amendment to apply. In this case, these documents didn't belong to Miller, they belonged to the bank. 
and the transactions that he'd taken part in had been handed over to a third party, his bank. Meaning he had no reasonable expectation of privacy in the documents. Thus, a subpoena was a fine way to get a hold of them. And in 1979, we get some of the first glimpses of what will be the privacy issues of our era. I imagine not many people know what a pen register is. It's a device that is placed on a telephone line, typically at the phone company's home office, which registers the numbers that are being dialed by a specific line, effectively telling the authorities who a person is calling and when. The authorities' use of one of these devices led to the case Smith v. Maryland. The procedural history of the case is kind of boring in light of the opinion, so let's just get right to that. Justice Blackman wrote in the opinion, quote, Telephone users, in sum, typically know that they must convey numerical information to the phone company, that the phone company has facilities for recording this information, and that the phone company does in fact record this information for a variety of legitimate business purposes. Although subjective expectations cannot be scientifically gauged, it is too much to believe that telephone subscribers under these circumstances harbor any general expectation that the numbers they dial will remain secret. Smith at 743. This further codified what became known as the third party doctrine. The idea that if you give information to a third party, your fourth amendment right in that information is forfeit. Interestingly, Justice Stewart found himself on the other side in this case. He wrote in his dissent, joined by Brennan, quote, The numbers dialed from a private telephone, although certainly more prosaic than the conversation itself, are not without content. Most private telephone subscribers may have their own numbers listed in a publicly distributed directory, but I doubt there are any who would be happy to have broadcast to the world a list of the local or long-distance numbers they have called. This is not because such a list might, in some sense, be incriminating, but because it could easily reveal the identities of the persons and places called and thus reveal the most intimate details of a person's life. I respectfully dissent. Smith at 748. Stewart's dissent here is interesting because it foretells something that's going to come up later. The idea that the Fourth Amendment shouldn't just protect information that's not turned over to a third party, or information that might be incriminating, or that you might want kept secret. The idea that instead the Fourth Amendment should protect things that might reveal something about you. You might think that the court here would understand that they've pretty much chipped away at the Fourth Amendment as much as they should be willing to, especially considering that the guy that wrote the cat's opinion was a dissenter in this case. But things only got worse. In 1983, the court heard United States v. Knotts. See, at this time, the police had a device called a beeper. They called it a beeper, and you could attach it to something and track it with relative accuracy as long as you were close enough to it, so you had to follow it wherever it went. The thing that the cops tracked here was a drum of chloroform. See, they'd gotten the manufacturer to place the beeper on the drum, thinking that the next person who would come to buy it was cooking meth. When another defendant came to pick up the drum, the cops followed. They had to use the beeper to find the exact cabin that he stopped at, but they were able to maintain visual contact most of the time. The cabin that the defendant had stopped at was owned by Knotts, and after observing it, the police decided to get a warrant to search the cabin. They found the evidence inside and convicted everyone, Knotts included. Appeal, 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 and in 1983, Justice Rehnquist writes the following. 
A person traveling in an automobile on public thoroughfares has no reasonable expectation of privacy in his movements from one place to another. When Peshin traveled over the public streets, he voluntarily conveyed to anyone who wanted to look the fact that he was traveling over particular roads in a particular direction, the fact of whatever stops he made, and the fact of his final destination when he exited from public roads onto private property. Knots at 281 to 282. In a concurrence, Justice Stevens has some issues. Just as a quick explainer uh, for those who may not know, a concurrence and a dissent are two different kinds of opinions that can be written by a Supreme Court justice apart from the majority opinion. A concurrence is written when the justice agrees with the outcome, either overturning or upholding the previous case, and a dissent is written when a justice disagrees with the outcome. A concurrence is typically written when a justice agrees with the outcome, but disagrees with the logic that the court uses, or disagrees with some aspect of the majority opinion. This concurrence from Justice Stevens reads, quote, The court suggests that the Fourth Amendment does not inhibit the police from augmenting the sensory faculties bestowed upon them at birth with such enhancement as science and technology afforded them. But the court held to the contrary in Katz. Although the augmentation in this case was unobjectionable, it by no means follows that the use of electronic detection techniques does not implicate especially sensitive concerns. Knotts at 288. Here we develop a pattern and have developed a pattern of the court expanding the government's power with regard to the Fourth Amendment. Third party doctrine, the idea that if you don't bother to keep something secret, you've given up your Fourth Amendment rights in that thing. The conflation of secrecy and privacy. This should be considered alongside Justice Stewart's concerns about what exactly it is that the Fourth Amendment protects and why. From here, law enforcement goes nuts, mostly with the support of the circuit courts. There are multiple cases following knots where the courts say that the warrantless application, specifically of GPS devices on people's vehicles, is absolutely fine and there's no Fourth Amendment problem. And the United States Supreme Court doesn't grant cert on appeals from them if there were any. This continues for a while until 2012. Antoine Jones was a nightclub owner in D.C. The FBI and the police department suspected that he and his manager were dealing drugs out of the club. The police applied for a warrant to put a GPS device on Jones's vehicle. They got their warrant, but they exceeded its scope. See, they kept the GPS device on the vehicle for far too long and tracked far too much. The police tracked Jones' movements 24 hours a day for four weeks. Jones was arrested in 2005. His attorney attempted to suppress the GPS data, as in cats, no dice. Jones was tried once in 2006, and that trial ended on a deadlocked jury on the conspiracy charge and an acquittal on several other charges. The government tried again in 2007, and the jury returned a guilty verdict of one count of conspiracy to distribute and to possess with intent to distribute five or more kilograms of cocaine and 50 or more grams of cocaine base. His sentence was life in prison. Jones appealed to the DC Circuit Court, and the DC Court overturned his conviction. 
They found that the police action was a search and that violated Jones's reasonable expectation of privacy. The Supreme Court granted cert to the prosecutor's appeal in 2011. During oral arguments, Justice Sotomayor said it best. She asked Deputy Solicitor General Michael Dreeben, Tell me what the difference between, between this, this and, and a general, general warrant is. I mean, a general what warrant motivated the Fourth Amendment historically was the uh, disapproval, the outrage that our founding fathers uh, experienced with general warrants that permitted a police indiscriminately to investigate just on the basis of suspicion, not probable cause and to invade every possession that the individual had in search of a crime. How is this different? This a warrant kind of authorizes where, where there's no probable cause, there's not even necessarily reasonable suspicion in the system. Uh, a warrant authorizes a search. This authorizes the ability to track somebody's movements in a car on a public roadway. A subject as to which this Court said in Knotts that no individual has a reasonable expectation of privacy because when they go out in their car, their car is traveling on public roads, anyone can look, the police have no obligation to avert their eyes from anything that anyone And there is Knotts, based on cats. I have to believe that if Justice Stewart knew what was going to happen, he wouldn't have written cats the way he did. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. After all, this is the guy who said, I know it when I see it. But I have to believe that a guy like that, especially given his misgivings in later cases, that he would have done it differently. But it doesn't matter. Because this is the precedent. This is what we have to contend with. The opinion in Jones determined that the addition of the GPS device to his vehicle was, in fact, a search, but they didn't do it based upon any means that we would find helpful today, necessarily. They did it based upon the standard that the intrusion upon the personal effects of Jones was, in fact, a search, but because it was a trespass, not necessarily because they collected data. This is a standard that's existed for a long time. The idea that a trespass sort of lends itself to the presumption that a search occurred. The majority opinion authored by Scalia is less interesting than the concurrence written by Justice Sotomayor. I want you to know it's going to take a lot of self-control not to read this whole cloth because it is a very interesting concurrence, but I'm going to hit the high notes. Justice Sotomayor wrote, quote, In cases involving even short-term monitoring, some unique attributes of GPS surveillance relevant to the CATS analysis will require particular attention. GPS monitoring generates a precise, comprehensive record of a person's public movements that reflects a wealth of detail about her familial, political, professional, religious, and sexual associations. Disclosed in GPS data will be trips the indisputably private nature of which takes little imagination to conjure. Trips to the psychiatrist, the plastic surgeon, the abortion clinic, the AIDS treatment center, the strip club, the criminal defense attorney, the by-the-hour motel, the union meeting, the mosque, synagogue, or church, the gay bar, and on and on. The government can store such records and efficiently mine them for information years into the future. And because GPS monitoring is cheap in comparison to conventional surveillance techniques and by design proceeds surreptitiously, it evades the ordinary checks that constrain abusive law enforcement practices limited police resources, and community hostility. 
Awareness that the government may be watching chills associational expressive freedoms, and the government's unrestrained power to assemble data that reveal private aspects of identity is susceptible to abuse. The net result is that GPS monitoring, by making available at a relatively low cost such a substantial quantum of intimate information about any person whom the government, in its unfettered discretion, chooses to track, may alter the relationship between citizen and government in a way that is inimical to democratic society. She continues, More fundamentally, it may be necessary to reconsider the premise that an individual has no reasonable expectation of privacy and information voluntarily disclosed to third parties. This approach is ill-suited to the digital age in which people reveal a great deal of information about themselves to third parties in the course of carrying out mundane tasks. People disclose the phone numbers that they dial or text to their cellular providers, the URLs that they visit and email addresses with which they correspond to their internet service providers, and the books, groceries, and medications they purchase to online retailers. Perhaps, as Justice Alito notes, some people may find the trade-off of privacy for convenience worthwhile, or come to accept this diminution of privacy as inevitable. And perhaps not. I for one doubt that people would accept without complaint the warrantless disclosure to the government a list of every website they visited in the last week or month or year. But whatever the societal expectations, they can attain constitutionally protected status only if our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence ceases to treat secrecy as a prerequisite for privacy. I would not assume that all information voluntarily disclosed to some member of the public for a limited purpose is, for that reason alone, disentitled to Fourth Amendment protection. Jones 415 through 417. As wonderful as that sounds, remember this is a concurrence. It does not carry the weight of law. Sotomayor did a good job outlining all of the problems with Fourth Amendment jurisprudence as it stands, all the different ways in which your rights have been stripped from you. In the digital age, everything is based on surveillance capitalism. This means that these companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, whatever they may be, they scoop up data at a rate that is absolutely mind-boggling. If you've ever exported your data from a website like Twitter, you get a PDF document that is absolutely massive. It is insane the amount of data that these companies keep on you. And all of them are third parties. All of that data is exempted from Fourth Amendment protections, every bit of it. And you might think, well, why would you tweet something if you want it to be subject to Fourth Amendment protections? And you'd be right. That would be a ridiculous expectation. Remember that Google scrapes your emails and they log everything. Supposedly they anonymize this data, but I don't trust that for a second. Otherwise, how would they serve you ads based upon it? I don't think anybody would reasonably argue that your emails shouldn't be considered private correspondence, but according to the law, according to current jurisprudence, secrecy is a prerequisite to privacy, as Justice Sotomayor said. I don't want to get too far away from the story that I'm trying to tell you, but as an aside, people look at me like I'm crazy when I tell them the things that I do in order to protect my privacy, and I don't do it perfectly. There's a lot of holes. I leak like a sieve. The things that I've set up aren't perfect, but it's something. It intimates that if I were ever to land in a position where I'm trying to defend my Fourth Amendment rights, I can show that I've taken steps to keep my data secret. This is why I do the things that I do. 
And when people look at me like I'm crazy, it's because they do not understand the jurisprudence. They do not understand the law. Because if they did, they'd do the same thing. Or they just don't care. In which case, they've abdicated their Fourth Amendment right to all of that data. Every bit of it. We just finished talking about a case that took place in the year 2012. All of you likely remember what was happening behind the scenes at that time. Because it was in May of 2013 that the world was introduced to Edward Snowden. The world was introduced to his work. And I want to say, regardless of what you might think of Snowden, he's a CIA asset, he's a spook, whatever it may be, his intel was good. He showed the world what the United States was doing, what the Five Eyes were doing. He revealed that the NSA was effectively scooping up all of the metadata that went across the internet. Now, it was supposedly limited to metadata, but there's no way to verify this. They could have literally everything. They built a giant data center in Utah to store it all. The entire internet was a big, giant wiretap. And still is. This hasn't stopped. And there's been very little movement on this in the judiciary. And it's difficult for them to move on it because they need a case to rule on. And it's difficult for somebody to bring a case against the United States government when they don't know what data's been scooped up. You can't state a claim. But there was a case in 2018. Carpenter v. United States. Now this didn't exactly limit anything the NSA could do, but it was a step in the right direction. It's not everything we need, but it's something. In late 2010 and early 2011, there were a number of robberies in and around Detroit. In 2011, four of the robbers were caught. One of those gave over his phone so that the FBI could review the calls made from his phone around the time of the robberies. Soon afterwards, a magistrate judge granted the FBI's request to obtain, quote, transactional records from various wireless carriers for 16 different phone numbers for, quote, all subscriber information, toll records, and call detail records, including listed and unlisted numbers dialed or otherwise transmitted to and from the target's cell phones, as well as cell site information for the target's cell phones at call origination and at call termination for incoming and outgoing calls. This information was gathered using a court order, rather than a warrant. Now, to clarify, cell site records are records which the phone company has. It tells them which cell phone towers were in range of the phone at the time. And as long as you have a couple of these, two you can use, three is preferable, you can determine almost exactly where that cell phone was at any given moment. Using this data, law enforcement determined that Timothy Carpenter was within two miles of four of the robberies. Carpenter was arrested, charged, and convicted on several counts of aiding and abetting a robbery that affected interstate commerce and another count of aiding and abetting the use or carriage of a firearm during a federal crime of violence. He was sentenced to 1,395 months in federal prison. Carpenter appealed to the Sixth Circuit who used Smith and the third-party doctrine 
to uphold his conviction. The ACLU took up Carpenter's case and cert was granted by the Supreme Court in 2016. The decision was 5-4 in favor of Carpenter. The majority opinion, written by Roberts, stated, quote, The government's position fails to contend with the seismic shifts in digital technology that made possible the tracking not only of Carpenter's location, but also everyone else's, not for a short period, but for years and years. Sprint Corporation and its competitors are not your typical witnesses. Unlike the nosy neighbor who keeps an eye on comings and goings, they are ever alert, and their memory is nearly infallible. There is a world of difference between the limited types of personal information addressed in Smith and Miller and the exhaustive chronicle of location information casually collected by wireless carriers today. The government thus is not asking for a straightforward application of the third-party doctrine, but instead a significant extension of it to a distinct category of information. He continues, Our decision today is a narrow one. We do not express a view on matters not before us. Real-time CSLI, or Tower Dumps, a download of information on all the devices that connected to a particular cell site during a particular interval, we do not disturb the application of Smith and Miller or call into question conventional surveillance techniques and tools such as security cameras. Nor do we address other business records that might incidentally reveal location information. Further, our opinion does not consider other collection techniques involving foreign affairs or national security. As Justice Frankfurter noted when considering new innovations in airplanes and radios, the court must tread carefully in such cases to ensure that we do not, quote, embarrass the future. Carpenter at 2219 and 2220. There are multiple dissents in this case. The justices are primarily hinging upon the idea that they don't want to get in the way of law enforcement's job. The dissenters are Kennedy, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsh. The most recent movement on this issue comes from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. On the 2nd of September, 2020, news broke that the Ninth Circuit had ruled the NSA's bulk data collection of phone metadata to be illegal. This was one of the programs that was revealed by Edward Snowden. The program was allowed because of FISA court decisions following 9-11. And the court in this case claims that those decisions were legally flawed in the first place. Make no mistake, this is good news, but this doesn't really mean much. Unless and until the Supreme Court grants cert on whatever appeal comes out of this, this is just the Ninth Circuit's opinion. It doesn't make any difference to federal law enforcement. It doesn't make any difference to the federal government. I believe in a post-Jones world, we're moving in the right direction. I believe in a post-Jones world, people are taking Sotomayor's words to heart. That we shouldn't conflate privacy and secrecy. But we're not there yet. And unless and until the Supreme Court decides that this kind of action violates the Fourth Amendment and expands Fourth Amendment protections, your rights are still effectively null and void with regard to your privacy in your data. That one phone call that Charlie Katz made all the way back in the 1960s is the most important phone call that ever happened to you. Thanks for listening.
the length of the preceding episode does not reflect the amount of work that went into it. It came out far shorter than I expected it to, or wanted it to, but I think it came together well. There was a lot of research that went into this. Uh, There was a lot of work that went into this. And if you're wondering why I've been gone for the past couple of weeks, this is part of it. I want to go ahead here at the end of the episode and run through the subscribers on Subscribestar, the credits. We have Superior, Executive Producers, Saw You 77, and Xerce, and Producers, Woe Dude, and Absurdist Fool. If you didn't hear your name and you thought you should have, double-check things because you may have been bumped from the Subscribestar. Um, that is Superior, Executive Producers, Saw You 77, and Xerce, and Producers, Woe Dude, and Absurdist Fool. Uh, they are diamonds in the rough, wolves amongst ravens, gods amongst men, beautiful bright spots of light in this dark and dingy place that we call the internet. I sincerely hope that they and everyone else enjoyed this little experiment. I'm wanting to do more of these. They're not easy, um, but I'd like to do more of them. Because I, I enjoyed making this. I, I thought it's... I, I'm happy with the final product, shorter than I expected, though it may be. And I, I really liked doing it, so I, uh, I hope that everyone else enjoyed it as well, because, man, it would, it would suck if, uh, if trying something out like that ended up um, disappointing any listeners. I, I, I certainly hope you all enjoyed it. And I've been wanting to do a big rundown like that on the subject of uh, privacy and, and where your privacy stands with regard to the law um, for, for quite a while now. I do need to go through because of some of the music that was used in this episode. I'm going to run through and credit those things. All of these are Creative Commons. They all came from the Free Music Archive, uh, freemusicarchive.org. Uh, the first, Jazzy Detective by John Bartman. John's Laughing Place by Howie Mitchell. Thrashing in the Unknown by Milk Music. Hip Hop in E Minor by Cityscape. Spy by Eddie. In the Trap by Young Carts. And, um, of course, in the middle there, you would have heard Parato's, uh, which is a CC0. I don't have to give uh, credit there, but that came off WoA a long time ago. Uh, 2018, I think I pulled that down. Um, and that's been the theme for Dino Files since, since that time. So, uh, thanks to all those wonderful creators and for uploading their work. Um, and thank you all so much for listening. I won't do the normal outro here. It would feel strange, I think. But we have, uh... There are other shows on Alternative Internet Radio, AIRAD.io, that can be found over there. When I do the show live, you can hear that at Alternative Internet Radio, AIRAD.io slash live. You can read the things that I write sometimes at the Rogue File, roguefile.com. And links to the Subscribestar and other ways to support the show can be found uh, on Alternative Internet Radio or on the Rogue File, both of those places. You can join the Discord from the Rogue File. And um, that's, that's pretty much it, I think. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, again, I really hope you enjoyed this little, uh, little experiment. And I will see you all next week.